Hi, everyone. Before I start this episode, I wanted to give a trigger warning and a content warning for any of you out there who might be facing trauma or who have not faced their traumas yet regarding abuse, addiction, suicide, or eating disorders. This episode does contain some sensitive content related to those subjects, and I realized that when I hit publish on this, I forgot to warn anyone out there, if you didn't read the show notes or see the title of this episode, that there are some sensitive material in here. So if this sort of subject makes you uncomfortable, feel free to go to the next episode. However, I believe Jessica's story is so important impactful and so powerful in helping just shine the light on such a heavy subject. So just wanted to put it out there. I know there are people like me, you know, I heard a term yesterday, white collar addiction, the moms striving for perfection that are like me. I was worried about what people thought I wanted to be likable. And it was more important for me in the ensuing years to make everyone around me more comfortable at at the sacrifice of myself. And I started unraveling, you know, after the seventh, I remember drinking really heavily one night and getting suicidal and just thinking, you know, I am a worthless piece of shit. Nobody knows what I'm a terrible mother. I really am. And I'm hiding these secrets. My next guest for Women's History Month is Jessica Hughes. I originally had this episode scheduled for Maternal Mental Health Week, but Jessica's message and her journey needed to get out to the world as soon as possible because I believe it speaks to so many moms out there. Jessica Hughes is a mom of seven and an incredibly talented artist who has spent decades in a career that has taken her from textile designer to illustrator, art educator, entrepreneur to her existing endeavor as a professional abstract artist. But above all, Jessica is a survivor, a survivor of sexual abuse, substance abuse, multiple forms of addiction, including one I just learned from her called white collar addiction and an eating disorder, almost all while being a mom to seven children. From the outside, Jessica was the perfect wife, the perfect mom, living in an upscale suburban neighborhood with the perfect house. But internally, Jessica was suffering so deep in so many ways. And if anyone saw the Meghan Markle interview on Sunday, it parallels that just no matter how put together or how perfect someone looks from the outside, you just never know what's happening behind closed doors. So to have compassion and empathy for everyone. It also showcased a very important point that it is so crucial to ask for help when you need it. But not only to just ask for help, but to also really push to get that help you need. I met Jessica at the end of 2020 and instantaneously I knew she was an incredible human with the biggest heart and had something really special about her. And so today I'm so honored to be able to share her raw and powerful story with you all. I also hope that her method and her way of using art as an outlet for helping herself and others heal inspires you to also look at art as a powerful medium that can bring joy, growth, and self-discovery. Enjoy. Welcome to Mommy's on a Call, your sacred space to laugh, learn, and feel like a real grown-up human for a hot minute. I'm Stephanie Uchima Carney, a mom of three under six, serial entrepreneur, business strategist, and donut connoisseur, just trying to get through the day one cold cup of coffee at a time. I believe that with more intention, a positive mindset, and self-care, it is possible to thrive in motherhood, business, and life. My mission is to uncover the daily rituals, life lessons, real-life tactics, and favorite tools to inspire and empower you, mommy, to get the most out of life every single unpredictable day. So grab your headphones, tell your kids you're on the potty, and tune in weekly for some laughs, knowledge bombs, and plenty of real talk with real moms, and maybe a dad or two. Welcome to the Mommy Pod. Hello and welcome back to Mommies on a Call. Today I'm bringing to you one of the most inspirational moms I have ever met and spoke to, Jessica Hughes. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's really an honor to be on your podcast and I'm really excited to talk to you today about about my journey over the last 25 years, I guess. So Jessica is a mom of seven and she's had an incredible story going through all the ups and downs, which we'll go through, but she is also an amazing artist. And 
when I saw your art, I was just attracted to this. Your colors are so vibrant. They're so beautiful and they just speak so much. And so I know there's a lot behind this. So today I'm really excited to talk all about art as healing and talk about all of your motherhood journey. But before we get started, I wanted to ask, what is your biggest mom win of the week? My biggest mom win of the week was getting my kids back. I share custody and I had COVID for two weeks. So I am over COVID and I had my kids back and it's the first time I've had them where my fifth child or my third child is off in college. So I have my youngest four and it was just get on the same page about school week. And it just was a win to have them and see them again after two weeks. So to give the audience a little bit of context, tell us what your current family structure looks like right now. Right now, I have seven children total. My boy-girl twins are seniors in college, one at Carnegie Mellon, the other is Savannah College of Art and Design. He's a furniture major. She's a double engineering major. My third one is also at Savannah College of Art and Design for fibers. And then I have a 10th grade boy, a 10th grade girl, a ninth grade boy, an eighth grade girl, and a seventh grade boy. So four teenagers teenagers and having, I'm sorry, I'm just doing the math and like backtracking here. You had four under basically four and under at one point or four. four Yeah. I had seven and nine years because of the twins. Oh, wow. So my, my craziest year that I have no memory of whatsoever is the year I had a newborn one-year-old, two-year-old, three-year-old, six-year-old, and the twins were nine. I really, that's just a blur because I really didn't sleep for about a decade. They were just- You're making me like nauseous thinking about it. I don't even know how you survived. (laughs) It was intermittent naps, you know, for 10 years. And I wonder why, you know, I went the way I went, but Yeah. Sleep deprivation is real. Well, we'll talk about the early years and before you even had kids, where are you today? So you have your seven kids and where you are in your business at the moment. At the moment, my business has skyrocketed. I'll explain more about why I paint what I paint. It's very personal. I was not always an abstract artist. I was caught up in perfection and making paintings that were pretty enough for other people to buy. And now I've thrown all that out the window because of my experience. This is really an emotional exchange between myself and the canvas and the paint. And I think because I'm so tightly tied emotionally to what I'm putting on canvas, that that connection is resonating with my collectors and with people who see it for the first time in a deep and meaningful way. And now that I'm not trying to sell art act, you know, like I was before, it's flying off the easel. I post it an hour later, you know, it's sold. So isn't that crazy? It's like when you force something, when you're like, I'm going to perfect, I'm going to plan everything. I'm going to do this, this, and this, and then it doesn't happen. But I also feel like that parallels motherhood. We think we're born into this and we're going to be the perfect mom, the perfect Uh specimen of what the, you know, nuclear family looks like. And then it's not like that. So before we get into, I guess, the messy, what were you doing before you had kids? And then let's talk through kind of those early years. So I was born to an amazing family. My dad, he passed away, but he was a recovered alcoholic. And so I feel like I got the best years as I got older because he really transformed into an incredible human being and was really my role model. And my mom is super intelligent, multifaceted human who was always just there for me as I went through the, you know, tumultuous emotional artist musician crisis of my teenage years. And so I feel like they nurtured me to be authentic, that I didn't have to fit in the box, that I didn't have to follow a formula that, you know, in third grade, I knew I wanted to be an artist. And then in fourth grade, I found music. So for college, I went there as a double art and music major. You know, I had the teenage angst, but I was really a whimsical, naive teenager even And this does tie into the next part because I went off to college with these different dreams. I'd never really had a real boyfriend. I wasn't sexually active. And then at 18, I went through a pretty traumatic sexual assault that I think if there's one event that kind of spun my life, planted the seeds for the future to spin out, it was that event. 
and I repressed everything that happened, went to college two weeks later, and I found the sport of rowing. And so much of my self-image distortion that I'll talk about later was born in that night. And I think, you know, hindsight's always 2020. And looking back, I didn't realize it, but I was on a mission to become as physically powerful as, as possible because of what happened. And that's, everyone was kind of baffled how this artsy musician shifted into mega athlete. You know, I realized that I was built for that sport. I was in a division three school and I just took off. I mean, insane. So I ended up transferring to University of Wisconsin. I dropped the music. I thought I'll have my art forever. I only have my body now. And Wisconsin, Big Ten, they were, you know, top five in the country. I thought if I make the top vote by my senior year, you know, I'll have made it. That's that's my only goal. And what was your position in crew? It, well, so the boats are, you know, there's the top varsity boat, it's an eight and then the J, the next one down. And I think we had probably four eights and it was a huge team. And I walked in there, I'm five foot 10, so I'm, I'm not tiny, but so I- So you're not the coxswain. <laughs> no, definitely not the cox, coxswain. And I was so shy back then, I could not have told everyone what to do. But I walked into the land of like the Amazon women. They were, my coach was six foot four. I was tiny compared to my teammates and, you know, we had girls on the team that were six, three, six, two, six, one, most of them were six feet. And I somehow managed to make that top boat by the first race as a sophomore. And I stayed there for the rest of my time at Wisconsin. And I, I had Olympic aspirations. I trained at the U S Olympic development camp in the summer. You know, I have raced internationally, you know, racked up the gold medals And in hindsight, again, like I was looking for pats on the back because I, inside, I felt so, I hated who I was. I felt dirty and faulty, like I had caused what had happened to me. And that caught up to me my junior year, the end of my junior year. I was set to win an individual indoor race and I lost. I, I came in second, but to me, that was losing. We had Michigan and Minnesota and like, it was big time. And I remember dragging my knuckles along a brick wall. You know, I just, for some reason, it took me straight back to that night and everything I had repressed and shoved way, way, way down. I started having flashbacks and I remember, you know, drinking heavily and those flashbacks started and I just unraveled. Luckily my coach had a close eye on me and she found, you know, a therapist for me and I got a little bit better, but I ended up taking that year off and I ended up not going back at all, but it's like, I dealt with it just enough to get me out of. It's like a bandaid. Yeah, it was a bandaid for sure. And there were lots of (laughs) band-aids and they didn't get all ripped off and dealt with the wound until, you know, very, very recently. So that was me in the beginning. And when I, I didn't, when I quit school, that was like the end of one giant chapter of my life. You know, the athlete, I walked away from that sport I didn't know if I was doing it for the right reasons. Was I just escaping that, that circumstance? Was I just obsessed with power so that I would never encounter that situation with a man again? You know, I was trying to sort that out, but at 21 or 20, 2021, my brain was only so developed. You know, I look at my 22 year olds and they're responsible. And I, I think, man, if I was like them, like it could have been so different, but I I wouldn't want it any other way. You know, I think a lot of us want to escape the bad things that have happened to us. And I tried to normalize that because everyone's had a sexual assault experience. You know, nobody talks about it, but it's so common. And I felt like mine was just a blip, you know, it doesn't matter. But I think my story is really what happens when like an event happens and it's repressed and these seeds are planted. Like I was genetically predisposed to addiction for sure, but that distorted my self image because the verbal abuse that happened that night was as bad as the physical. And, you know, those voices in our heads sometimes where we get in a fight with someone or something bad happens and that, you know, you're a worthless. So it just, ah, the bad stuff that comes out. So that's where it began. And it's taken me 20 plus years to figure that out and to face into that reality and to, you know, to stand up against all the stigmas, because 
you know, what happened next was the substance abuse addiction, the eating disorder, the PTSD, the mental health issues, all while trying to. And you had kids at this time now, right? So So, after all of this, when did you have your first set of twins? Yes. So (laughs) I, when I dropped out of school, I bought a house. I started an art school. I was like the Pied Piper of Madison, Wisconsin, and I was making good money. I thought, you know, why, why go back to school? I'm making 50,000 a year, which back then was amazing. And then I, whoops, accidentally got pregnant with twins. Dad was a great guy, but it was all in or not at all. And he had plans for law school and went off to do that. And that was hard, but it was fine. And I thought it was just one at that point. When I found out it was twins, that was an unforgettable moment. But I was like, okay, I'm clearly wanted in Pittsburgh. I put the house for sale. I knew I couldn't do twins on my own and keep running an art school and all of that. So I moved home with my parents who were amazing. And I look at those first two years that the twins were born as like this precious moment in time when I just, I had the support of my mom and dad and sister and these beautiful boy girl twins were one in each arm, you know, and they were this easy, easy babies. And I think the universe kind of knew that I couldn't handle a whole lot because my plan in life And this is my plan in life was no children ever. I was not going to get married. I was going to passionately pursue my art and, you know, and now you have seven children (laughs) and I was going to ask, did you always have seven children in the cards or at least like a big family, like three or four? Nope. Nope. Did not even think I liked kids. I had (laughs) no clue what to do with babies in my arms, but I knew I was in love, you know? Just- so single mom of, t- of twins. Now mm-hmm. we move on a little bit more. You're at home. How do you end up now with seven? And- <laughs> yeah. So I got back into rowing. My parents wanted me to have a social life and it was early, early morning. They said, go off race again, you know, start building a life here. And I found, I met my husband there. He was a coach, 17 years older. At that point, I'm 24. And I'd never dated anyone older. I don't know. It was just, we, we really formed a relationship around a passion for rowing, really good wine, you know, alcohol, going out to dinner. And he had never been married. He was 40. He wanted a family. And I was like instant family. So we dated six months. We were engaged for four and then we were married. And then bam, I was pregnant with Catherine, our third and 9-11 happened 10 days after her birthday and he's a financial advisor. So that was like the first shockwaves of the world felt like it was falling apart, like it did for everybody. So three years later, I had Maddie and I started an art licensing company because I really felt like I, I need, I had this, I mean, I'm wired to be an artist and this passion to do this was born there and I needed an outlet. And, you know, his terms were, if I was making money, that would be fine. It's interesting you phrase it as his terms. Yeah, there were, you know, he really wanted a stay-at-home mom. And I have tremendous respect for stay-at-home moms, but I, I am wired, like the need to create and to share what I do with the world and put it out there is like my language. It's, it's the frequency I understand. It's, it's my gift to give. And even though I couldn't recognize that gift in myself, that drive was still there. And I knew I had potential to do really well because I was driven. I did have ambition. And, you know, early on I could manage three kids and starting a business and it took off and did well. And then I'm pregnant with my fourth and my husband and I had conflict over some things that were pretty traumatic. And at that point I thought, you know, it's the first time I thought about divorce, but I'm pregnant with a fourth. I've got all these little kids under six and it just didn't seem like a possibility. I ended up having a child every year after that. (laughs) I I still can't get over that. (laughs) All of them are 14 months apart and they're amazing children. They are my absolute greatest creations ever. And I love them with all my heart, but it was hard. It was definitely hard raising them. And I was, you know, like we were talking about earlier, I, in the beginning, my kids were only going to play with wooden toys. There was going to be Montessori and Waldorf and all the books and no television and 
All the things we think a perfect, quote, perfect Instagram mom would be. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, we had the matching pajamas at Christmas and the the perfect looking photos. We were in a fairly wealthy neighborhood outside of Pittsburgh. And I was really always trying to reach this love, this standard in the house that I could never meet. And I'm not really sure when the migraines, my body started rebelling. You know, there's a book, the body keeps the score. And I am a very sensitive, introverted, emotional being like so many are. And I just could not be the paradox of my life. I felt like I was living this dual life. I was the shame of hiding the eating disorder at this point, the substance abuse, the alcohol was strong in between pregnancies, but it was really those pregnancies that I think, you know, my addiction was a story of the slow insidious creep up on you kind over the course of 20 plus years. It's not my story that it was not rapid, you know, hit bottom overdose and nearly die after a year or two of using if it just, that's not where I went with it. But I think that's why it's important to tell my story because I know there are people like me, you know, I heard a term yesterday, white collar addiction, the moms striving for perfection that are like me. I was worried about what people thought I wanted to be likable. And it was more important for me in the ensuing years to make everyone around me more comfortable at at the sacrifice of myself. And I started unraveling you know, after the seventh that I did, I remember drinking really heavily one night and getting suicidal and just thinking, you know, I am a worthless piece of shit. Nobody knows what I'm a terrible mother. I really am. And I'm hiding these secrets. And this is me talking in my head. And I just thought what, what's the, the rational leaves, you know, with alcohol like that, the ration. And I was on pills at that point too, for anxiety and, you know, benzos are, are subtle and nasty, but the warped distorted self-image and the warped, distorted thoughts that went through my mind. It wasn't a rational thing to think I'm going to take my own life and leave seven children behind. Now were you at that point, pouring everything into your children, were you doing anything in business? Were you, did you have any other outlet? I had closed up shop with the art licensing business when I had the sixth, we had moved multiple times, I think constantly seeking the perfect house too. And I just... I I couldn't, I had an employee and three interns and I could not manage that and the pregnancies and the lack of sleep. It just, it was my first real window into, I cannot do this, but I didn't know how to ask for help. You know, I knew my dad was sober and I, you know, I remember that night just being over consumed with just darkness. And that was one of my little wake up calls. And I, tried really hard to quit drinking. And I ended up just white knuckling it through the alcohol withdrawal and not really, you know, it was subtle. It crept up on me, but then I shifted right over to pharmaceuticals and the food addiction came full force, but I kept that all hidden. You know, like I lost 90 pounds one year and (gasps) my gosh, and you look like a very, I know you're 5'10", but you look very petite. (laughs) No, I like, I was, I got really big after all those kids, you know? So it, it just, I reached that point where I was at a crossroads, but I didn't have the skills. I hadn't dealt with the trauma to get very far. So I poured myself into my kids those years. We had every coffee table covered in butcher paper with crayons and markers. We had sidewalk talk out on the driveway. And I really became completely enamored with children's art. And I didn't mean to start a company celebrating children's art, but I did. And, you know, that was like my little rise up a little, you know, I did, that was a really incredible company. I ended up designing an artist in residence program at Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. And I worked on the oncology floor talking about no right or wrong way to create art and kind of coaxing these kids who are really, really ill to try something different. Let's tell the story of yourself, you know, who you are outside of a cancer diagnosis. And I'll collaborate with you. Just tell me the colors and I'll take your, your drawing and go back and do a painting of it. Your lines, your everything. It was all about projecting the art on canvas. And then I would paint as if a, a four-year-old or a six-year-old had the technical skills of an artist. And then we would do the unveiling at the hospital and the nurses and doctors would come in with the family and we'd unveil this two foot by two foot painting on the wall. And it just, it was such a touch point for these children to be recognized as something other than the leukemia patient or the bone marrow transplant patient. And it was, it was amazing. 
but like healing also. Absolutely. I mean, that's the therapeutic value of the creative process has always been ongoing since I was young. And that's what I taught. That's what, that was my gift to give people is to make them safe and comfortable exploring art, even if they'd never had any experience with it at all. I couldn't apply that to myself. So when I went to create, it had to be perfect. And that's why I say I'm a recovering perfectionist now too. But as my Kids Art to Canvas was climbing and getting recognition here in Pittsburgh, I spoke at the Global Arts and Healthcare Conference in Texas in 2014. I had hospitals come and say, you know, can you design something like this for our pediatric program? But the floor kind of fell out. My son went through major, we didn't know what was wrong with him. He's coughing up blood and he ended up testing positive for cystic fibrosis. And then we couldn't find a mutation. Then it was congenital lobar emphysema, all these like tiny, rare illnesses. So his lungs are super compromised, but he's good now. And my dad was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. And he was really the only safe man in my life, emotionally safe. I had no relationship at this point with my husband. He had emotionally cut me off, didn't understand me, didn't understand my emotions. You know, I felt like I had, it was not okay for me to be anything but peaceful and serene and cooperative. And I'm kind of a strong personality. So I would fight and then I'd submit and then I'd fight and I'd submit. And I finally gave up, you know, any of that and just pulled away. But when my dad got sick, you know, all of a sudden I felt like I was caring for everybody and I bookshelved kids art to canvas. I said, you know, I have this time with my dad. They had given him three months. He ended up staying for 18, but I took him to all his chemo appointments and was managing the kids and my mom and my sister and my dad. And we moved another time and, you know, the things are really starting to catch up at this point. And I didn't have alcohol, but I had my pills. And when my dad passed away in 2015, you know, and my parents were like second parents to my children. They lived two houses away in the house that we had lived at prior, you know, for seven years. So anytime the atmosphere in my home, which no one knew it was, it was intense. And I felt like a buffer for my kids. And there was a lot of anger and walking on eggshells and they would run to my, my parents' house. And so when my dad died, it wasn't just how do I grapple with my own grief? It was how do I midwife these children through this incredible loss of this parent, this incredible grandfather that they had and the relationship that they each had with him. And so that was really my breaking point. And I could not grapple with the loss of my dad. So I focused on my kids. I did the best I could. Meanwhile, I'm getting physically, you know, sicker and sicker. I I was heavily abusing pills at that point and was a complete hypochondriac. I was, couldn't sleep at night because I was so afraid of everybody getting cancer. You know, that year my dad died, we lost my mother-in-law and three other close family and friends to cancer within the span of six months. So it was a pretty major major year. And then, then I, there were, it just went on and on. My kid, my daughter had both her knees rebuilt. Like it just was like this swarm of darkness came over and I didn't understand. So I went off the rails. I don't remember much of 2015, 16 and 17 because I was abusing pills in the morning to become super mom and try and get out of bed and keep to the standards of the house. And I saw it all slipping. It was like sand, you know, and I remember going to my mom's house and just crying. I couldn't even articulate why I I was so out of touch with myself. And the whole time I, you know, I need these pills. I, I don't have a problem, you know, like this is required for me. I, you know, I had that victim mentality. I'm sick. I'm mentally ill. Did anyone outside besides your immediate family know, like school pickups, drop-offs, PTA, whatever that might be? No. What did they see as Jessica? I fully, fully withdrew from the world. I didn't participate in any school. I really withdrew. I got a little bit scared to leave my house. I stopped going to the grocery store, you know, and that was part of the eating disorder issue too. I just, I just reached a breaking point and I unraveled over those last two years so no one knew my, my ex-husband did not know. Really? He saw, I was How? taking a lot of pills, but he, he and I were so disconnected and he knew I was, 
I was sick all the time. I was, you know, I was the crazy one. So he just thought like I needed all that. Didn't know I was abusing it, you know, and didn't know that I manipulated doctors and got them to shift the scripts around so that I always had a surplus. You know, I had all my dad's pain pills after he died. I had, I went through multiple surgeries from 2013 to 2017. I just, I mean, I had scripts for amphetamines and benzos and pain pills and, you know, anything, anything I needed. And, and that scares me in this culture because it's, it's a real thing that's happening in the world right now. And it's not okay. So in 2017, I tried to overdose and I had had three surgeries in a row. I had an infection. I had a partial hysterectomy and and I had an infection and I was off in a wing of the house in the room that my dad died in. He passed away in our home because they were moving and I was in that same room and it was this dark mahogany covered, the ceiling and the walls man's office and the shades were drawn. And I was in there for probably two and a half months recovering. And my kids checked in on me. Who helped you? Who took care of your children? I don't remember. You know, I don't, honestly, I don't, I don't remember much of, I don't remember. And that's scary to me. And that's where, you know, it doesn't matter the drug you use or whether you have money or not, the impact of addiction is the same, no matter what, you know, if it takes you to that spiritual death inside, you know, my soul was ash. It kills me right now. Like I've forgiven myself for it, but to say, I I don't know how my kids were taken care of. You know, that's a horrible statement to make, but it, it, that's how far down I went. And I remember just being, just sobbing in the dark and taking, you know, a whole lot of pills Uh, And just knowing I didn't want to wake up. I think subconsciously I knew that I loved my kids too much. I couldn't do that. And so I don't know how long I was asleep, but I woke up and no one knew about this until I couldn't even tell the people in rehab that this happened. I, I just was so ashamed. And now I'm at the point where I need to talk about all of this with courage because there are people suffering silently and alone like me. And I am on the other side of that. You know, I entered rehab when I woke up, I was like, thank God I have a chance. And I tried to get clean for the next six weeks on my own. So still, you know, I was too proud. I didn't need help. I didn't know how to ask for help. And the longest I'd la- I could last was 17 hours. And then I'd give in and take just one. And then I'd give in and I'd take more. And finally on January 30th, I just broke and I had this moment of clarity and I knew I needed help. You know, my mom was the only one that really saw what was happening. And I remember her telling me, you know, Jess, think of rehab, like, like maybe a vacation, you know, you no kids, no anything, you know, and I went and it just clicked. I was like vacation. I haven't had a vacation in 25 years, you know, whatever it takes, but that was the word I remember. And I went, okay, I got up the courage. I did the intake. I sobbed and the rehab I went to was an incredible place. And they heard my intake and they said, we'll be there in four hours. So they kind of appeared in the middle of the night. They got there at one in the morning and I was whisked away. And that was really traumatic for my kids because there was not time to prepare them. You know, they tell me they remember me sitting in bed with the calendar and the papers and the notes and all the directions and writing all of, all of the things to do before I left. And And how old was your oldest and youngest at that time? The twins were freshmen in college. My youngest would have been, he was nine. So young. So I spent the next 28 days in rehab and I was in a bubble and I felt safe for the first time in my life. And my plan had been because I didn't really have a problem. And I knew how to do therapy. Like I'd been in and out of therapy. I was raised by, you know, my mom's a therapist and a priest. And like, I felt so in tune. I've worked my issues that I was just going to go. I wasn't going to talk to anyone, just do the therapy, get safely detoxed and come home and everything would be perfect. And, you know, the lies we tell ourselves for self-protection, I got there and my plan was not to engage with anyone. And I remember my head clearing and like the third day, hearing this woman talk and cry. And I realized it was me and it was like the dam broke. And I just was, everything came pouring out. It's the rawest 
I have ever felt in my life. I didn't have anything to numb, but I had the incredible support of the staff. And I was put in a grief and loss group with people who had been through grief and loss. And we had amazing staff in the group. Sometimes it takes one person to be really vulnerable. I never wanted that to be me, but it just, it was like, it was out of my control. And I ended up having a really close knit group where we really supported each other. And there was art therapy and music therapy and the things that spoke to my heart. And I found my way through, you know, I got the, I realized I couldn't go back to the marriage and stay clean. And then I had to be brave enough to figure out the next steps. And the art therapy there was really my, I had stopped painting completely for those three years. And that was when I really understood That's the first time I applied the therapeutic value of art to myself and used it as a tool for healing. And I just, that was the beginning of me coming to life again. I think all of those things happening. And so now I celebrate three years clean on January 31st. So just in a few days. Congratulations. Thank you. So I know we're probably running out of time. No, this is so important. (laughs) I did go into eating disorder treatment because of course it's like whack-a-mole, you know, you get one thing under control. It's like kids putting them to bed. You put one kid down and bam, the other one's up. Well, it's kind of like the underlying is addiction. So you find something else to be addiction or addicted to. Yeah. And so I found myself after rehab, I told him I was leaving. I was living with my, you know, I just rocked the world. I rocked. It just was not easy staying clean And, you know, they say, don't make any major life decisions your first year, but like my sobriety and depended on me leaving. I really felt in my gut that I would not live the year if I went back because the, I just knew myself too well. I knew overdosers, you know, it just, it was too dangerous. And I felt like, all right, these are the choices I leave and I do what I've never wanted, which is to divorce and shatter my children's heart. And I really had to reframe that narrative. And I've worked hard on that because I have four girls and realized I didn't shatter the family. I showed my daughters and my sons that you don't have to stay in something where you are so compromised to that level. It just wasn't right. And I wanted them to see a role model of someone willing to do whatever it took to put that oxygen life mask on myself and change for the best of all of us. So that first year was rocky and I found myself binging and then purging more. And, you know, I was always mostly a normal weight. So I felt like that I had food issues. I didn't have an eating disorder. And then I started restricting and started losing weight. And I think, you know, there was a lot of chaos still going on that first year clean. I moved out, rented a house for the first time in two decades, I'm on my own, lots of, of chaos that happened. You know, he cut me off financially for two and a half months. I didn't have any money at all. Luckily I had a credit card in my name that I lived on, but just things that I was not prepared necessarily to deal with, but I had to, and I ended up just that food, you know, whether it's binging, purging or restricting, it's mind altering, mood altering, just the way a substance is. And you know, that dizzy, heady feeling when I hadn't eaten in two or three days, that was a way to get a feeling outside of myself. And I think we're all looking for that thing outside of ourselves so that we don't have to sit still and sit in the feelings. So, you know, by June, and I was addicted to laxatives too. So by June, my hair is falling out and I admitted, you know, this too, this is the shameful secret that I still don't have a grip on. So I again, faced into that dark tunnel and said, all right, the only way on the other side is to go through it. So I entered inpatient treatment in the summer of 2019 and spent 30 days there, which was another upheaval for my children. But, you know, my mom and sister really, really stepped in and supported them throughout that and got us all through. I'm super grateful for that. So it was, it was tumultuous coming out of there though, you know, food is legal and we need it to live on. And I had a rocky start that next fall on my own. Yeah, you know, I did inpatient, but it was trying to figure that out. I'm not going to lie. That is still a much harder battle for me than the substance abuse. And I am heavily involved in recovery programs and therapy and group therapy, and I pull on every modality. And that's really where when COVID hit, 
I felt like I had these pieces in place. I was so much stronger. I had connected with people. I had learned to ask for help. I allowed people in. My walls were down. I was forging deep connections with people, you know, and I'm waking up. I'm finding these lost dreams awaken, you know, they, they say, and my dreams were waking up and I, I realized I have the choice now to do whatever I want if I'm brave enough to go after it. But COVID really forced the issue for me because I, I kind of felt like I've been juggling all these things my whole life. If I could just get a break, you know, then I could catch up, then I'll have it all together. And I still was under that illusion. So COVID hits and my son with the lung issues moves home from college because there was no safe place for him to be there where he wasn't at risk. And I was the only one who had the flexibility to house him. So we went into full lockdown March 17th and stayed that way for 65 days. Didn't leave the house or the studio. And luckily I had leased the studio right next to my home so I could teach and start an art school again. But I, I kind of slipped into depression again. You know, the food thing was a little bit a little bit off the rails and I found myself in bed again. And I think six weeks, eight weeks in, I remember getting out of bed and looking in that mirror and like, have you ever looked in the mirror and looked in your eyes and tried to look as far as you can? And it's like, I locked in with my soul and I realized there's still this discontent inside this, you know, cause I got my wish. The world stopped. I had all the time in the world and I still, was different, you know, like I still didn't get it right. It wasn't the excuse. Yeah. There was was no excuse. And so I looked in that mirror in those eyes and I said, all right, there's more in there that I have not dealt with. And I dug down even deeper. I went in hard with the therapy. I started pulling at other modalities. I started meditating. You know, I really found courage when I were you painting then too. I was up until that point, but I had, I was a part-time rowing coach and I, I still didn't believe I didn't have the self-worth yet. And that was the transformation for me in the pandemic is that digging down deep, I started infusing, you know, just these different modalities and trying things. And I got heavier into mixed media where I was doing what I'd been taught in art therapy, which, you know, the finger painting and the play. And I was making background papers, tearing them up, putting them on canvas. But The Artist's Way is an incredible book by Julia Cameron. And I had read that 20 years ago and I really was heavy into the journaling and the morning pages. So the stream of consciousness, three pages of stream of consciousness writing just to dump out all the verbal. And there are a lot of other artists that are doing this. And there's a woman named Jodi King who did a like free Facebook kind of thing where she, she walked us through this. And I started incorporating the mixed media torn paper and the paint on top of the writing and found this incredible level of healing that I had not ever had access to. Because now, you know, when you go from a grounded state into stream of consciousness writing, it's like unloading all the verbal, knowing that it's going to be covered over in paint. So it's that safe atmosphere that I'd never really given myself to explore is, you know, kids, what if my kids read it? What if somebody reads it? Like, I don't want to write it all down. And then shifting straight into painting on top of it to seal that in. And the nonverbal, you know, music therapy, art therapy, it accesses that nonverbal area where nuances of emotion that the limits of the verbal language, you can't always articulate it. And there's, there's more. And that's where I feel like incorporating painting and this goes for anybody as a concrete tool for healing and accessing, putting that on paper, it captures those nuances and it reflects it back at you. And you make connections that, you know, maybe you wouldn't before. And it wasn't even anything that I was painting. And I'd always, you know, tried abstract art before, and I, I just didn't understand it. And this enabled me to understand it. And my paintings really shifted from this point forward. And I had kind of a miraculous experience that's too long for, for this time, but it, it really, I was given a gift of all of a sudden recognizing myself as if I was looking at me from a third person point of view. It was just a flash of a moment. And I saw myself the way I appear to other people. And I went, oh my God, that's a quirky, but pretty 
but kind of funny, intelligent, like a highly talented individual. Oh my God, I don't have to try anymore. You want, I don't have to try so hard anymore. And I kind of surrendered and let go. And I started just taking this big to canvas and my art has changed at that point. And I really felt like my higher power, you know, I am deeply connected to the spiritual and I have had to surrender to a higher power. And I really felt like I, my purpose is to bravely and courageously and honestly and authentically show up to the canvas and pour my heart out for my healing and for others and to tell my story bravely and courageously and, and speak out against the stigmas against mental health and how perfect we have to be as mothers and, and business women and entrepreneurs. And the pressure is just too much. And I nearly broke. And I don't want that to happen to anyone. If I can be a beacon of hope, just to say there is this other side. And, you know, now like I paint with abandon, I am so spiritually free inside and full of purpose and joy and love and forgiveness of myself, of my ex-husband, you know, of all of it. And I'm so grateful for the experiences because had it been any less painful, I may still be back there. Sometimes the pain needs to be great enough to change. And if it's not quite there, you know, we don't change, we stay stuck. So I can look back at all of that and not say, woe is me, poor girl. You know, I'm, I'm not a victim. I am so grateful for the addiction, for the circumstances. You know, I wouldn't wish it on anybody. But for me, I love who I am today. And I have something to offer the world. And to be a role model for my children is, is really what drives me to repair those relationships and to live in the moment love the moment, let go of the worry of the future. And just, if I show up and do my part each day to the best of my ability and stay in the moment, you know, and the art is an outlet for my churning, you know, the stress and anxiety. It's a way to just get it out of my system. And that's where, you know, I want to give that tool to as many people as possible. So I am sorry, I'm monologued for like, I know. I like knew a snippet of your story and all of that. I, (laughs) I couldn't stop. I, I, I am speechless. Wow. You're such an amazing, incredible and strong woman. And I am so grateful to have met you and to have come even in your presence and to learn from you and to see what you've done. It's such, wow. To those out there listening to the podcast, you can't see her beautiful art <laughs> behind her but it just speaks so many words. And so go and find her out there and I'll, I'll have you do your little spiel. But before we wrap up, actually a couple of questions. One, what do you do with your artistic morning pages? And I'm, I've started calling them Jessica's dirty little secrets because it's kind of <laughs> like, you know, you get to hide all of those yeah. like things. So what do you do with those after you write them and cover them in art? Like, do you keep them? Do you, what do you do with them? They're just in a giant stack at this point, but I've had a number of people say, you know, do you sell them? Yeah. So some of them, I think I'm going to part with some of them. I'm definitely keeping because they are the rawest. Although I've become braver and braver with putting my heart, you know, on my sleeve, on my canvas, because really I feel like what my art is, what my journal pages are with the paintings I'm creating, it's a metaphor for taking that pain inside and not just reaching to a point of, okay, I'm okay, but like turning it into something beautiful and inspiring. And, you know, I don't set out to say, I'm going to make an inspiring painting. I don't plan anything anymore. Cause I don't, I don't care anymore what anybody thinks of me. I'm so glad to know myself and to be free to paint these paintings that it's just icing on the cake to sell them. And, but it's so many people have said to me, you know, that painting holds so much meaning for you. Thank you for putting it out. You know, thank you for selling it and to switch the narrative again, like it would be selfish of me to keep this to myself. And that's such a different story to tell myself than, than what I told before, which is there's a million artists. I'm just another one. I have no impact. If I make impact to one person, you know, my heart is really to serve others more than anything. Well, I definitely resonate with that. So to wrap it up, 
(laughs) You gave me like the chills. I'm, I'm still trying to, to gather my thoughts, but I do ask everyone this question. So I thought I'd throw it out there. What is your one superpower that you gained once you became a mom? When I became a mom, my superpower became, gosh, I think just love, love, selfless love, you know, overwhelming, can't put words on it, love, the understanding that love doesn't have a limit, you know, especially as I had more, you know, I think people worry that if I have one more, I won't have the capacity to love or give attention to the next one. And it's just the abundance of it. And that's my, one of my favorite words now is there is abundance in everything. We just need to reach out and grab it. And, you know, that, that was my superpower when they put those, those babies in my arms, I went, Oh, my heart. And that's what carried me through, you know, the capacity to love others. And now it's to love myself. And in turn, like I can give so much more because of that. So it's beautiful. And Jessica, where can we find you and where can we buy these beautiful pieces of art? I am most present on Instagram. My handle is Jessica Hughes Fine Art. And my all my handles are Jessica Hughes Fine Art. I'm now on TikTok doing time lapse of just mixing, you know, that's just for fun. My website is jessicahughesfineart.com. And if you want to follow me, I am developing courses for art as a tool for wellness, as well as just how to just engage when you have no experience with it and you've got that creative itch. So those are in development right now. There's a tab on my website where you can just sign up for the newsletter. And if, if you sign up for that newsletter, then you'll be the first to know about all these new things that are coming out very soon. So. Well, thank you for joining today. I really appreciate you sharing your story and opening up your heart to my audience. So thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Mommy's on a Call. Your support means the absolute world to me. You can find the show notes for this episode and other goodies over at mommiesonacall.com. And if you enjoyed this episode or have gotten value from the podcast, I would be so grateful if you could head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review so that we can reach and empower more moms all over the world together. Thank you so much again, Mommy Pod, and I will see you here next time. 